just want to begin this morning by considering we, we hear it periodically and consider it every once in a while, but I want us to consider it once again just how blessed we are as a nation to have what we have. For all of our faults and all of the criticisms that many folks could bring up or things about our nation, we are extremely blessed to have the accessibility to numerous things that not everybody enjoys in this world. For instance, we take for granted clean running water or an abundance and variety of food. Some folks, if they could see us parading through a grocery store, would be amazed. The educational opportunities that we have, the medical care we have access to, the electricity, and the numerous freedoms that we enjoy are just a few of the many things we often take for granted, I think, here in our nation. Yet if any one or more of these were suddenly taken away from us, and that is not as far-fetched as it may sound. Think about how our lives would suddenly be transformed or even crippled as a result. Just one of them. We'd be wise to heed the counsel of Lebanese-born financier and philanthropist Ziad Abdel-Nur. He said, learn to appreciate what you have before time makes you appreciate what you had. Food for thought. Well, like food and water and so many things, Bibles are generally abundant and easily accessible for Christians here in America for the most part. And with that in mind, I just want to do a quick survey. Just in light of it being Gideon Sunday, how many of us have ever received a Gideon's New Testament or a Gideon's Bible? Raise your hand. That's pretty good accessibility right there. How many of you have ever seen one in a hotel room? How many of us here own a Bible? Y'all look very enthusiastic. <laughs> All right, here's a question. Let's see. How many of us own more than one Bible? That, that was enthusiastic right there. Okay. How many of us can access the Bible through an app or online? Of course, most of us can. And I could keep going on and on and on about the numerous opportunities of access to the Scriptures that we enjoy. You see, at this time, in this place, we enjoy an accessibility to the Bible that people from previous time periods and many in places around the world today would consider to be unimaginable. They can't relate to it. The Bible is mass-produced and available to us in many formats, not just in print. Most of us are fortunate enough to have the education to read the Bible. But we also have it translated in more than one version or translation that we can go and pick and choose from. But it wasn't always this way. Before Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press in the mid-1400s, copies of the Bible were handwritten. Imagine how your ministry would be changed if y'all had to handwrite every one of those Bibles you're trying to distribute. The first book he printed on his printing press was the Bible, but it was written in Latin, which most Europeans at that time would not have been able to read. About a quarter of them or so would have been able to read. And I like what I came across where blogger uh, Shaloa Baker, who had taken a trip to Germany, she went to where 
a museum on Gutenberg was, and also to Martin Luther's place at Wittenberg where he nailed the 95 theses on the door. And she just made a few observations that I think put a lot of this into light for us, and I just want to quote what she came away with. She said, before Gutenberg, it took three years to hand copy the Bible. Three years. Gutenberg only printed 150 Bibles. Only 48 remain today, by the way. It took one day, one day to make one page, to set it. Now, I want to step out of her observation here. That's hard for us to imagine given that we're used to copying machines. Or we make corrections on our computer and then we whip it out of a printer just like that. One day, even then, one day to set one page. The Bibles he printed were 1,286 pages. So think about how long it would take just to print all those. You're talking over three years to print those copies. Then they had to be sent to artists to to write their decorative printings around as they did back then. And then the books had to be bound. And they didn't have big machines to do that back then. So it would have taken over three and a half years to produce copies of the pages of the whole Bible. Not including the time it took the artists to do their painting and the designs, nor the time that it took to put the book together. But fortunately today is much more cost efficient and less labor intensive to produce mass copies of God's word. But even though we have it in mass copies, it's important for us to keep in mind Our Bibles are not just something we just need to casually throw around as any other book because it is God's holy word. And as much as we have it best produced, according to Wycliffe Global Alliance 2018 statistics, there are at least 1.5 billion people around the world who do not have the entire Bible translated in their own language. Think about it, still 1.5 billion people. They might have portions of Scripture, might even have a New Testament, but they don't have the whole Bible. We, on the other hand, have multiple English translations at our disposal, both in print and online, and that we can read without any real threat of danger or persecution. But it is not that way in other countries. In an article in Christianity Today Christianity Today in 2016, Alana Francis made these following, just listed six countries, of which I'm just going to name three. She said, North Korea, in this totalitarian state, the only thing that North Koreans are permitted to worship is the nation's leader, Kim Jong-un. Bibles are banned, and those found in possession of one face imprisonment, torture, and even death, as do up to three generations of their family so it doesn't potentially just affect you but it affects those after you your children and your children's children in Somalia Christians residing in Somalia face constant persecution from radical Islamist and government officials she writes the prevalence of the Islamic extremist group Al-Shabaab means that believers often practice their faith in extreme secrecy and cannot own Bibles. Then she mentions Uzbekistan. She writes, in this Central Asian dictatorship, high penalties are imposed on those who own Bibles. Authorities are known to detain Christians found in possession of the holy book for, quote, keeping and storing extremist materials 
with the purpose of further distribution. Now that we have kind of compared and contrasted what other folks are going through, let's look at our lives and consider how we are stewards of the awesome blessings that God has bestowed upon us. Let's consider when was the last time we read, studied, meditated, or prayed through a portion of Scripture. Not just glanced at it, but took time with it. Not just publicly here at church, but privately when we were alone. Better yet, how often do we spend time in God's Word, not just to learn something as an academic type exercise, not just to receive a quick spiritual pick-me-up when we need it, and not just to desperately seek some guidance from God at the last minute when we've explored all other options, but to seek the personal and powerful presence of God Himself. This morning, we're going to contrast our attitude and treatment of God's Word with that of the psalmist in Psalm 119. Not only is this the longest chapter in the Psalms, but it is also the longest chapter in the Bible altogether, containing 176 verses. You'd be thankful to know we're only going to cover 16 from the beginning because there's no way I could begin to cover it all. But I invite you to look at verses 1 through 4 to start with. And again, Psalm 119. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You, meaning God, have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. All right, as we see in the outline, when we seek God, we will act according to his word. We will see, first of all, that we apply his word. We apply God's word. In other words, we will seek to obey and walk according to the law of the Lord, as the psalmist writes. Now, it's important to keep in mind, and I'm not going to even break down all of them, but the psalmist in the Hebrew is using at least eight different terms to describe God's word throughout this psalm. And here in verse 1, where it's translated law, he uses the word Torah. Torah was used to describe an instruction or command. And obviously in relation to God who has the ultimate authority over everyone and everything, his instructions, his commands are given for us not to consider but to follow, and his commands are not to be neglected. It's not for us to simply study and memorize. It is meant to be obeyed and applied. That's why James writes in James chapter 1, according to the New Living Translation, he says, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. 
But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and do not forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Indeed, that divine blessing is what the psalmist writes about again in verses 1 and 2. Notice, he says, blessed, that is fortunate, happy are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed, fortunate, happy are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. When you look in verse 2, he uses another Hebrew term for God's word. It's the term edot which is translated statutes here. Perhaps a better translation for Edot would be testimonies, which is how the New English Standard and New American Standard and New King James versions translated. Edot was a legal term derived from the Hebrew word for witness. So you think about in a court of law what a witness is. We find this Hebrew word used by Moses in Deuteronomy 31, verses, 27, verses 26 and 27. And it's there we read that the book of the law was placed beside the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle to serve as a witness against the Israelites' sin and rebellion, which result in divine cursing. All right, it pointed out by looking at God's clear standard, they could see exactly how they fell short and why curses would come upon them at times. In contrast, the psalmist in verse 2 describes those who keep and preserve the testimonies of God, who observe and comply with the witness of God, resulting in divine blessing. And why does he keep and observe God's testimonies? Because they seek him with all their heart with all their heart. There are no rivals for their ultimate allegiance and affection, which are reserved for God alone. Their obedience is a byproduct of their genuine, wholehearted pursuit of God himself. This wholehearted devotion also transforms their lives as they are described as doing nothing wrong. Now, we know from God's word that no one is perfect. There was only one who walked this earth who was perfect, and that was Jesus himself. But a life devoted to seeking God is characterized by an ever-increasing obedience to his word, not only outwardly, that's key, but also inwardly. And thus, they walk in his ways. It doesn't take long for us to go through the day. We may not be doing things against God's word on the outside, but it does not take long in our thought processes to realize we're not always thinking like he wants us to think. How many times have we ever looked at somebody and just smiled and thinking on the inside, I could just kill you right now. I'd love to just suck you upside the head right here. Sometimes we think stuff like that. The word reveals what's in our hearts truly. In verse 4, the word precepts translates another Hebrew term to describe God's word. The late Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner explains that this Hebrew term was, quote, a word drawn from the sphere of an officer or overseer, a man who is responsible to look closely into a situation and take action. 
So the word points to the particular instructions of the Lord as of one who cares about detail. Think about that. I immediately heard that if it's applying to military terms. Some of you know this better than I do, but superior officers in the military care about the details of their individual soldiers. They care about how shined those shoes are. They care about how well the bed was made up, and so on. When a superior officer gives an order, he or she expects it to be followed promptly and correctly. Well, as we think about God, he loves his people deeply on a level that we can't begin to imagine, and he cares about the details in our lives. Therefore, he has laid down precepts, his word, carefully and comprehensively so that they are obeyed fully. We are not to pick and choose the truths and commands of Scripture that we like and disregard portions that we don't. God's word is to be diligently and faithfully kept as the psalmist seeks to do. Look down at verses 5 and following with me here. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees and do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. Secondly, we see here that when we seek God, we will cleanse our ways according to God's word. We will cleanse our ways. The psalmist asks and then answers in verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? And then he answers by living according to your word. Easy to say, challenging to do. God's word shows us what pure and clean living is. John Calvin, that great theologian of the Protestant Reformation through whom our German reform roots are traced, described it this way. He said, the law is like a mirror. In it, we contemplate our weakness. Then the iniquity, that is the sin arising from this weakness. And then finally, the curse coming from both. Just as a mirror shows us the spots on our face. You see, the law, the scriptures, like a mirror, reflect back to us the flaws, the imperfections, and the filth, and the sin in our hearts and lives that don't belong there, and thus it reveals our need for the cleansing blood of Christ and the purifying power of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the psalmist recognizes that he needs God's grace and help to cleanse his ways. He knows he can't do it on his own. That's why he pleads with God to not forsake him. 
In verse 12, he asked God to help him know and understand his decrees. The Hebrew can also mean here, teach me what you have prescribed for me. Just as a doctor prescribes specific medicines at specific doses to be taken as directed, the Bible contains God's prescription for eternal life and holy living through the grace of God to be received and taken as directed in his word. We can't be cured on our own. We can't be cured without God's direct personal intervention. We can't beat sin on our own. We need him. That's why in verse 10, the psalmist pledges all of his heart to God, but then immediately pleads for God to help as he prays, do not let me stray from your commands. The key to allowing God's cleansing power to clean up our ways is by allowing him to work, not just superficially on the outside, but supernaturally from the inside out. When that happens, true change happens. We give the Holy Spirit more to work with in our hearts and lives when we fill our hearts with Scripture, when we memorize it, when we meditate upon it more and more and not just rush through it. We begin to have it there, accessible for God's divine guidance and encouragement in our lives. That's why the psalmist affirms to God in verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If we don't know God's word, we don't know how short we fall. It's in God's word which we receive truth and grace. And then finally we read beginning in verse 13. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Thirdly, when we seek God, we will treasure God's word. Treasure his word. In verse 14, the psalmist proclaims that he rejoices in following God's statutes as one who rejoices in rich, great riches. Now, quick survey again. I'm going to ask this. I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How, about, how many of us can really say, really say, we would get more excited about obeying God this afternoon than we would if we went home and discovered we had won $10 billion. Show of hands, how many of you want to? I don't know if I can raise my hand. Do you understand what he's saying with the perspective of the psalmist? Following his decrees brings him a deeper, more lasting joy. Today he might say it this way, obeying God's word brings me as much contentment and satisfaction as most people find in winning the lottery. See how people get excited when they win small stuff? 
let alone the big stuff? Theologian and author Dr. Tim Keller encourages this. He says, we should see amazing riches in the Word and meditate on it long and hard. We ought to work the truths of Scripture into our affections until they shape our loves, hopes, and imagination. In his book, The Wonder of the Word of God, the late pastor and author Robert Sumner tells the story about a Kansas City man who was a fairly new Christian who was severely injured during an explosion. Not only did he lose both of his hands and his vision, but his face was severely damaged and disfigured. Being a new Christian, the man was discouraged by the fact that he could no longer see to read his Bible. Having no hands, he didn't even have the fingertips to feel if he wanted to read through the Braille print. But then one day he heard about an English woman who used her lips to read Braille. And so he got excited and filled with hope. He managed to get some copies of the books of the Bible written in Braille. But to his disappointment, when he went to press his lips to the page and feel the Braille, he discovered that the nerve endings in his lips had been largely ruined. But then one day, as he was given another, another shot, as he put his mouth to that page in an attempt to feel the Braille characters once again, his tongue just happened to glance some of them. And he noticed that he was able to feel them. It was then that he began to use his tongue to read the Bible. And by the time Sumner had written his book, this man had already read the Bible from cover to cover four times. Do we get that same joy from God's Word? Would we have been willing to even invest that just so we could read it and digest it and to let it transform our hearts and thus transform our lives? The Bible is a treasure trove of many gems that remain hidden to those who don't explore and look for them. There is so much in there that is rich for life, not just here on earth, but for all of eternity. And it is there just for the digging, if we're willing just to simply pick up the shovel and dig it out of there. But that choice is ours. Let us pray. Father God, our prayer is simply that verse 16 of what we just read would become a reality in our lives. That we delight in your decrees and that we will not neglect your word with which you have blessed us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.